God has mercifully given us a book which is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.15 By reading that book we may learn what to believe, what to be, and what to do, how to live with comfort and how to die in peace. Happy is that man who possesses a Bible. Happier still is he who reads it. Happiest of all is he who not only reads it, but obeys it and makes it the rule of his faith and practice. Nevertheless, it is a sorrowful fact that man has an unhappy skill in abusing God's gifts, his privileges and power and faculties are all ingenuously perverted to other ends than those for which they were bestowed. His speech, his imagination, his intellect, his strength, his time, his influence, his money, instead of being used as instruments for glorifying his Maker, are generally wasted or employed for his unselfish ends, and just as man naturally makes a bad use of his other mercies, so he does of the written word. One sweeping charge may be brought against the whole of Christendom, and that charge is neglect and abuse of the Bible. To prove this charge, we have no need to look abroad. The proof lies at our own doors. I have no doubt that there are more Bibles in Great Britain at this moment than there ever were since the world began. There is more Bible buying and Bible selling, more Bible printing and Bible distributing than ever was since England was a nation. We see Bibles in every bookseller's shop, Bibles of every size, price, and style, Bibles great and Bibles small, Bibles for the rich and Bibles for the poor. There are Bibles in almost every house in the land. But all this time, I fear, we are in danger of forgetting that to have the Bible is one thing and to read it quite another. This neglected book is the subject about which I address the readers of this paper today. Surely it is no light matter what you are doing with the Bible. Surely when the plague is abroad, you should search and see whether the plague spot is on you. Give me your attention while I supply you with a few plain reasons why everyone who cares for his soul ought to value the Bible highly, to study it regularly, and to make himself thoroughly acquainted with its contents. 1. In the first place, there is no book in existence written in such a manner as the Bible. The Bible was given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. In this respect, it is utterly unlike all other writings. God taught the writers of it what to say. God put into their minds thoughts and ideas. God guided their pens in setting down those thoughts and ideas. When you read it, you are not reading the self-taught compositions of poor, imperfect men like yourself, but the words of the eternal God. When you hear it, 
you are not listening to the erring opinions of short-lived mortals, but to the unchanging mind of the King of Kings. The men who were employed to indict the Bible spoke not of themselves. They spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Second Peter 1, 21. All other books in the world, however good and useful in their way, are more or less defective. The more you look at them, the more you see their defects and blemishes. The Bible alone is absolutely perfect. From beginning to end, it is the Word of God. I shall not waste time by attempting any long and labored proof of this. I say boldly that the book itself is the best witness of its own inspiration. It is utterly inexplicable and unaccountable in any other point of view. It is the greatest standing miracle in the world. He that dares to say the Bible is not inspired, let him give a reasonable account of it, if he can. Let him explain the peculiar nature and character of the book in a way that will satisfy any man of common sense. The burden of proof seems, to my mind, to lie on him. It proves nothing against inspiration, as some have asserted that the writers of the Bible have each a different style. Isaiah does not write like Jeremiah, and Paul does not write like John. This is perfectly true. And yet, the works of these men are not a whit less equally inspired. The waters of the sea have many different shades. In one place they look blue, in another green. And yet, the difference is owing to the depth or shallowness of the part we see, or to the nature of the bottom. The water in every case is the same salt sea. The breath of a man may produce different sounds according to the character of the instrument on which he plays. The flute, the pipe, and the trumpet have each their peculiar note. And yet the breath that calls forth the notes is in each case one and the same. The light of the planets we see in heaven is very various. Mars and Saturn and Jupiter have each a peculiar color. And yet we know that the light of the sun which each planet reflects is, in each case, one and the same. Just in the same way the books of the Old and New Testaments are all inspired truth, and yet the aspect of that truth varies according to the mind through which the Holy Ghost makes it flow. The handwriting and style of the writers differ enough to prove that each had a distinct individual being, but the divine guide who dictates and directs the whole is always one. All is alike inspired. Every chapter and verse and word is from God. Oh, that men who are troubled with doubts and questionings and skeptical thoughts about inspiration would calmly examine the Bible for themselves. 
Oh, that they would act on the advice which was the first step to Augustine's conversion. Take it up and read it. Take it up and read it. How many Gordian knots this course of action would cut. How many difficulties and objections would vanish away at once like mist before the rising sun. How many would soon confess, The finger of God is here. God is in this book, and I knew it not. This is the book about which I address the readers of this paper. Surely it is no light matter what you are doing with this book. It is no light thing that God should have caused this book to be written for your learning, and that you should have before you the oracles of God. Romans 3, 2, 15, verse 4. I charge you, I summon you, to give an honest answer to my question. What art thou doing with the Bible? Dost thou read it at all? How readest thou? 2. In the second place, there is no knowledge absolutely needful to a man's salvation except a knowledge of the themes which are to be found in the Bible. We live in days when the words of Daniel are fulfilled before our eyes. Many run to and fro, and knowledge is increased. Daniel 12.4 Schools are multiplying on every side. New colleges are set up. Old universities are reformed and improved. New books are continually coming forth. More is being taught, more is being learned, more is being read than there ever was since the world began. It is all well. I rejoice at it. An ignorant population is a perilous and expensive burden to any nation. It is a ready prey to the first Absalom or Catiline or Watt Tyler or Jack Cade who may arise to entice it to do evil. But this I say, we must never forget that all the education a man's head can receive will not save his soul from hell unless he knows the truths of the Bible. A man may have prodigious learning and yet never be saved. He may be master of half the languages spoken round the globe. He may be acquainted with the highest and deepest things in heaven and earth. He may have read books till he is like a walking cyclopedia. He may be familiar with the stars of heaven, the birds of the air, the beasts of the earth, and the fishes of the sea. He may be able, like Solomon, to speak of trees from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows on the wall, of beasts also, and fowls, and creeping things, and fishes. 1 Kings 4.33 He may be able to discourse of all the secrets of fire, air, earth, and water, and yet, if he dies ignorant of the Bible truths, he dies a miserable man. Chemistry never silenced a guilty conscience. Mathematics never healed a broken heart. All the sciences in the world never smoothed down a dying pillow. No earthly philosophy ever supplied hope and death. 
No natural theology ever gave peace in the prospect of meeting a holy God. All these things are of the earth, earthy, and can never raise a man above the earth's level. They may enable a man to strut and fret his little season here below with a more dignified gait than his fellow mortals, but they can never give him wings and enable him to soar towards heaven. He that has the largest share of them will find at length that without Bible knowledge he has got no lasting possession. Death will make an end of all his attainments, and after death they will do him no good at all. A man may be a very ignorant man, and yet be saved. He may be unable to read a word or write a letter. He may know nothing of geography beyond the bounds of his own parish and be utterly unable to say which is nearest to England, Paris or New York. He may know nothing of arithmetic and not see any difference between a million and a thousand. He may know nothing of history, not even of his own land, and be quite ignorant whether his country owes most to Samarimus, Boadicea, or Queen Elizabeth. He may know nothing of the affairs of his own times and be incapable of telling you whether the Chancellor of the Exchequer or the Commander-in-Chief or the Archbishop of Canterbury is managing the national finances. He may know nothing of science and its discoveries and whether Julius Caesar won his victories with gunpowder or the apostles had a printing press or the sun goes round the earth may be matters about which he has not an idea. And yet, if that very man has heard Bible truth with his ears and believed it with his heart, he knows enough to save his soul. He will be found at last with Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, while his scientific fellow creature, who has died unconverted, is lost forever. There is much talk in these days about science and useful knowledge, but after all, a knowledge of the Bible is the one knowledge that is needful and eternally useful. A man may get to heaven without money, learning, health, or friends, but without Bible knowledge he will never get there at all. A man may have the mightiest of minds and a memory stored with all that mighty mind can grasp, and yet if he does not know the things of the Bible, he will make shipwreck of his soul forever. Woe, woe, woe to the man who dies in ignorance of the Bible. This is the book about which I am addressing the readers of these pages today. It is no light matter what you do with such a book. It concerns the life of your soul. I summon you, I charge you, to give an honest answer to my question. What are you doing with the Bible? Do you read it? How readest thou? 3. In the third place, no book in existence contains such important matter as the Bible. The time would fail me if I were to enter fully into all the great things which are to be found in the Bible and only in the Bible. 
It is not by any sketch or outline that the treasures of the Bible can be displayed. It would be easy to fill this volume with a list of the peculiar truths it reveals, and yet the half of its riches would be left untold. How glorious and so satisfying is the description it gives us of God's plan of salvation and the way by which our sins can be forgiven. The coming into the world of Jesus Christ, the God-man, to save sinners, the atonement he has made by suffering in our stead, the just for the unjust, the complete payment he has made for our sins by his own blood, the justification of every sinner who simply believes on Jesus, the readiness of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost to receive pardon and save to the uttermost. How unspeakably grand and cheering are all these truths. We should know nothing of them without the Bible. How comforting is the account it gives of the great mediator of the New Testament, the man Christ Jesus. Four times over, his picture is graciously drawn before our eyes. Four separate witnesses tell us of his miracles and his ministry, his sayings and his doings, his life and his death, his power and his love, his kindness and his patience, his ways, his words, his works, his thoughts, his heart. Blessed be God, there is one thing in the Bible which the most prejudiced reader can hardly fail to understand, and that is the character of Jesus Christ. How encouraging are the examples the Bible gives us of good people. It tells us of many who were of like passions with ourselves, men and women who had cares, crosses, families, temptations, afflictions, diseases like ourselves, and yet by faith and patience inherited the promises and got safe home. Hebrews 6.12 It keeps back nothing in the history of these people. Their mistakes, their infirmities, their conflicts, their experience, their prayers, their praises, their useful lives, their happy deaths, all are fully recorded, and it tells us the God and Savior of these men and women still waits to be gracious and is altogether unchanged. How instructive are the examples the Bible gives us of bad people. It tells us of men and women who had light and knowledge and opportunities like ourselves, and yet hardened their hearts, loved the world, clung to their sins, would have their own way, despised reproof, and ruined their own souls forever. And it warns us that the God who punished Pharaoh and Saul and Ahab and Jezebel and Judas and Ananias and Sapphira is a God who never alters and that there is a hell. How precious are the promises which the Bible contains for the use of those who love God. There is hardly any possible emergency or condition for which it has not some word in season. And it tells men that God loves to be 
put in remembrance of these promises, and that if he has said he will do a thing, his promise shall certainly be performed. How blessed are the hopes which the Bible holds out to the believer in Christ Jesus. Peace in the hour of death, rest and happiness on the other side of the grave, a glorious body in the morning of the resurrection, a full and triumphant acquittal in the day of judgment, an everlasting reward in the kingdom of Christ, a joyful meeting with the Lord's people in the day of gathering together. These, these are the future prospects of every true Christian. They are all written in the book, in the book which is all true. How striking is the light which the Bible throws on the character of man. It teaches us what men may be expected to be and do in every position and station of life. It gives the deepest insight to the secret springs and motives of human actions and the ordinary course of events under the control of human agents. It is the true discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 How deep is the wisdom contained in the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes! I can well understand an old divine saying, Give me a candle and a Bible, and shut me up in a dark dungeon, and I will tell you all that the whole world is doing. All these are things which men could find nowhere except in the Bible. We have probably not the least idea how little we should know about these things if we had not the Bible. We hardly know the value of the air we breathe and the sun which shines on us because we have never known what it is to be without them. We do not value the truths on which I have been just now dwelling because we do not realize the darkness of men to whom these truths have not been revealed. Surely no tongue can fully tell the value of the treasures this one volume contains. Well, might old John Newton say that some books were copper books in his estimation, some were silver, and some few were gold. But the Bible alone was like a book all made up of banknotes. This is the book about which I address the reader of this paper this day. Surely it is no light matter what you are doing with the Bible. It is no light matter in what way you are using this treasure. I charge you, I summon you to give an honest answer to my question. What art thou doing with the Bible? Dost thou read it? How readest thou? For, in the fourth place, no book in existence has produced such wonderful effects on mankind at large as the Bible. A. This is the book whose doctrines turned the world upside down in the days of the apostles. Eighteen centuries have now passed away since God sent forth a few Jews from a remote corner of the earth to do a work which, according to man's judgment, must have seemed impossible. 
He sent them forth at a time when the whole world was full of superstition, cruelty, lust, and sin. He sent them forth to proclaim that the established religions of the earth were false and useless and must be forsaken. He sent them forth to persuade men to give up old habits and customs and to live different lives. He sent them forth to do battle with the most groveling idolatry, with the vilest and most disgusting immorality, with vested interests, with old associations, with a bigoted priesthood, with sneering philosophers, with an ignorant population, with bloody-minded emperors, with the whole influence of Rome. Never was there an enterprise to all appearance more quixotic and less likely to succeed. And how did he arm them for this battle? He gave them no carnal weapons. He gave them no worldly power to compel assent and no worldly riches to bribe belief. He simply put the Holy Ghost into their hearts and the Scriptures into their hands. He simply bade them to expound and explain to enforce and to publish the doctrines of the Bible. The preacher of Christianity in the first century was not a man with a sword and an army to frighten people like Mohammed, or a man with a license to be sensual to allure people like the priests of the shameful idols of Hindustan. No, he was nothing more than one holy man with one holy book. And how did these men of one book prosper? In a few generations, they entirely changed the face of society by the doctrines of the Bible. They emptied the temples of the heathen gods. They famished idolatry or left it high and dry like a stranded ship. They brought into the world a higher tone of morality between man and man. They raised the character and position of woman. They altered the standard of purity and decency. They put an end to many cruel and bloody customs, such as the gladiatorial fights. There was no stopping the change. Persecution and opposition were useless. One victory after another was won. One bad thing after another melted away. Whether men liked it or not, they were insensibly affected by the movement of the new religion and drawn within the whirlpool of its power. The earth shook and their rotten refuges fell to the ground. The flood rose and they found themselves obliged to rise with it. The tree of Christianity swelled and grew and the chains they had cast round it to arrest its growth snapped like chaff, And all this was done by the doctrines of the Bible. Talk of victories indeed. What are the victories of Alexander and Caesar and Marlborough and Napoleon and Wellington compared with those I have just mentioned? For extent, for completeness, for results, for permanence, there are no victories like the victories of the Bible. B. 
This is the book which turned Europe upside down in the days of the glorious Protestant Reformation. No man can read the history of Christendom as it was five hundred years ago and not see that darkness covered the whole professing church of Christ, even a darkness that might be felt. So great was the change which had come over Christianity that if an apostle had risen from the dead, he would not have recognized it and would have thought that heathenism had revived again. The doctrines of the gospel lay buried under a dense mass of human traditions, penances and pilgrimages and indulgences, relic worship and image worship and saint worship and worship of the Virgin Mary formed the sum and substance of most people's religion. The church was made an idol. The priests and ministers of the church usurped the place of Christ. And by what means was all this miserable darkness cleared away? By none so much as by bringing forth once more the Bible. It was not merely the preaching of Luther and his friends which established Protestantism in Germany. The grand lever which overthrew the Pope's power in that country was Luther's translation of the Bible into the German tongue. It was not merely the writings of Cranmer and the English reformers which cast down popery in England. The seeds of the work thus carried forward were first sown by Wycliffe's translation of the Bible many years before. It was not merely the quarrel of Henry VIII and the Pope of Rome which loosened the Pope's hold on English minds. It was the royal permission to have the Bible translated and set up in churches so that everyone who liked might read it. Yes, it was the reading and circulation of Scripture which mainly established the cause of Protestantism in England, in Germany, and Switzerland. Without it, the people would probably have returned to their former bondage when the first reformers died. But by the reading of the Bible, the public mind became gradually leavened with the principles of true religion. Men's eyes became thoroughly open. Their spiritual understandings became thoroughly enlarged. The abominations of popery became distinctly visible. The excellence of the pure gospel became a rooted idea in their hearts. It was then in vain for popes to thunder forth excommunications. It was useless for kings and queens to attempt to stop the course of Protestantism by fire and sword. It was all too late. The people knew too much. They had seen the light. They had heard the joyful sound. They had tasted the truth. The sun had risen on their minds. The scales had fallen from their eyes. The Bible had done its appointed work within them, and that work was not to be overthrown. The people would not return to Egypt. The clock could not be put back again. A mental and moral revolution had been affected, and mainly affected by God's word. Those are the true revolutions which the Bible effects. What are all the revolutions recorded by Bertrand? 
What are all the revolutions which France and England have gone through compared to these? No revolutions are so bloodless, none so satisfactory, none so rich in lasting results as the revolutions accomplished by the Bible. This is the book on which the well-being of nations has always hinged and with which the best interests of every nation in Christendom at this moment are inseparably bound up. Just in proportion as the Bible is honored or not, light or darkness, morality or immorality, true religion or superstition, liberty or despotism, good laws or bad, will be found in the land. Come with me and open the pages of history and you will read the proofs in time past. Read it in the history of Israel under the kings. How great was the wickedness that then prevailed. But who can wonder? The law of the Lord had been completely lost sight of and was found in the days of Josiah, thrown aside in a corner of the temple. Second Kings 22.8 Read it in the history of the Jews in our Lord Jesus Christ's time. How awful the picture of scribes and Pharisees and their religion. But who can wonder? The scripture was made of none effect by man's traditions. Matthew 15.6 Read it in the history of the Church of Christ in the Middle Ages. What can be worse than the accounts we have of its ignorance and superstition? But who can wonder? The times might well be dark when men had not the light of the Bible. This is the book to which this civilized world is indebted for many of its best and most praiseworthy institutions. Few probably are aware how many are the good things that men have adopted for the public benefit of which the origin may be clearly traced up to the Bible. It has left lasting marks wherever it has been received. From the Bible are drawn many of the best laws by which society is kept in order. From the Bible has been obtained a standard of morality about truth, honesty, and the relations of man and wife which prevail among Christian nations and which, however feebly respected in many cases, makes no greater difference between Christians and heathen. To the Bible we are indebted for that most merciful provision for the poor man, the Sabbath day. To the influence of the Bible we own nearly every humane and charitable institution in existence. The sick the poor, the aged, the orphan, the lunatic, the idiot, the blind, were seldom or never thought of before the Bible leavened the world. You may search in vain for any record of institutions for their aid in the histories of Athens or of Rome. Alas, there are many who sneer at the Bible and say, the world would get on well enough without it, who little think how great are their own obligations to the Bible. Little does the infidel workman think, as he lies sick in some of our great hospitals, that he owes all his present comforts to the very book he affects to despise. 
Had it not been for the Bible, he might have died in misery, uncared for, unnoticed, and alone. Verily, the world we live in is fearfully unconscious of its debts. The last day alone, I believe, will tell the full amount of the benefit conferred upon it by the Bible. This wonderful book is the subject about which I address the reader of this paper this day. Surely it is no light matter what you are doing with the Bible. The swords of conquering generals, the ship in which Nelson led the fleet of England to victory, the hydraulic press which raised the tubular bridge at the Menai. Each and all these are objects of interest as instruments of mighty power. The book I speak of this day is an instrument a thousandfold mightier still. Surely it is no light matter whether you are paying it the attention it deserves. I charge you, I summon you, to give me an honest answer this day. What art thou doing with the Bible? Dost thou read it? How readest thou? Five, in the fifth place, no book in existence can do so much for everyone who reads it rightly as the Bible. The Bible does not profess to teach the wisdom of this world. It was not written to explain geology or astronomy. It will neither instruct you in mathematics nor in natural philosophy. It will not make you a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. But there is another world to be thought of beside that world in which man now lives. There are other ends for which man was created beside making money and working. There are other interests which he is meant to attend to beside those of his body, and those interests are the interests of his soul. It is the interest of the immortal soul which the Bible is especially able to promote. If you would know law, you may study Blackstone or Sundin. If you would know astronomy or geology, you may study Herschel and Lyle. But if you would know how to have your soul saved. You would study the written word of God. The Bible is able to make a man wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Second Timothy 3.15 It can show you the way which leads to heaven. It can teach you everything you need to know. Point out everything you need to believe and explain everything you need to do. It can show you what you are, a sinner. It can show you what God is, perfectly holy. It can show you the great giver of pardon, peace and grace, Jesus Christ. I have read of an Englishman who visited Scotland in the days of Blair, Rutherford and Dixon, three famous preachers, and heard all three in succession. He said that the first showed him the majesty of God, the second showed him the beauty of Christ, and the third showed him all his heart. It is the glory and beauty of the Bible that it is always teaching these three things more or less 
from the first chapter of it to the last. The Bible applied to the heart by the Holy Ghost is the grand instrument by which souls are first converted to God. That mighty change is generally begun by some text or doctrine of the Word brought home to a man's conscience. In this way, the Bible has worked moral miracles by thousands. It has made drunkards become sober, unchaste people become pure, thieves become honest, and violent-tempered people become meek. It has wholly altered the course of men's lives. It has caused their old things to pass away and made all their ways new. It has taught worldly people to seek first the kingdom of God. It has taught lovers of pleasure to become lovers of God. It has taught the stream of men's affections to run upwards instead of running downwards. It has made men think of heaven instead of always thinking of earth and live by faith instead of living by sight. All this it has done in every part of the world. All this it is doing still. What are the Romish miracles which weak men believe compared to all this, even if they were true? Those are the truly great miracles which are yearly worked by the Word. The Bible applied to the heart by the Holy Ghost is the chief means by which men are built up and established in the faith after their conversion. It is able to cleanse them, to sanctify them, to instruct them in righteousness, and to furnish them thoroughly for all good works. Psalm 119, verse 9, John 17, 17, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The Spirit ordinarily does these things by the written word, sometimes by the word read, and sometimes by the word preached, but seldom, if ever, without the word. The Bible can show a believer how to walk in this world so as to please God. It can teach him how to glorify Christ in all the relations of life and can make him a good master, servant, subject, husband, father, or son. It can enable him to bear afflictions and privations without murmuring and say, It is well. It can enable him to look down into the grave and say, I fear no evil. Psalm 23, 4. It can enable him to think on judgment and eternity and not feel afraid. It can enable him to bear persecution without flinching and to give up liberty and life rather than deny Christ's truth. Is he drowsy in soul? It can awaken him. Is he mourning? It can comfort him. Is he erring? It can restore him. Is he weak? It can make him strong. Is he in company? It can keep him from evil. Is he alone? It can talk with him. Proverbs 6.22 All this the Bible can do for all believers, for the least as well as the greatest, for the richest as well as the poorest. It has done it for thousands already, 
and is doing it for thousands every day. The man who has the Bible and the Holy Spirit in his heart has everything which is absolutely needful to make him spiritually wise. He needs no priest to break the bread of life for him. He needs no ancient traditions, no writings of the fathers, no voice of the church to guide him into all truth. He has the well of truth open before him, and what can he want more? Yes, though he be shut up alone in a prison, or cast on a desert island, though he never see a church or minister or sacrament again, if he has but the Bible, he has got the infallible guide and wants no other. If he has but the will to read that Bible rightly, it will certainly teach him the road that leads to heaven. It is here alone that infallibility resides. It is not in the church. It is not in the councils. It is not in ministers. It is only in the written word. A. I know well that many say they have found no saving power in the Bible. They tell us they have tried to read it and have learned nothing from it. They can see in it nothing but hard and deep things. They ask us what we mean by talking of its power. I answer that the Bible no doubt contains hard things, or else it would not be the book of God. It contains things hard to comprehend, but only hard because we have not grasped of mind to comprehend them. It contains things above our reasoning powers, but nothing that might not be explained if the eyes of our understanding were not feeble and dim. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.